Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Hermes Trismegistus and Hermetism. Wouter J. Hanegraaff, University of Amsterdam, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And if you haven't figured it out by now, Hanegraaff is one of the leading experts in our field and also uh, a flag bearer of, of academic study of Western esotericism. So if you haven't read his books or uh, aren't aware of his program for masters and PhDs in Hermeticism and other such things in Amsterdam at the universe, university, check him out. There are truly few to whom we owe a greater debt than Wouter Hanegraaff. The so-called philosophical Hermetica were written down in Egypt in the 2nd to 3rd centuries. They are concerned with philosophical and spiritual teachings about how to find salvation through the attainment of supra-rational knowledge, gnosis. Western intellectuals during the Middle Ages had access only to the Latin Aslepius, and the core teachings of this tradition were no longer understood. They became available again during the second half of the 15th century when manuscripts of the Corpus Hermeticum reached Italy from Byzantium and were translated into Latin by Marsilio Ficino and Ludovico Lazzarelli. Ficino did chapters 1 through 14 and Lazzarelli chapters 16 through uh, 18. According to a highly influential but now discredited narrative created by Francis A. Yates since the 1960s, this led to a hermetic tradition represented by major Renaissance intellectuals such as Ficino, Giovanni Pico della Mandola, and Giordano Bruno. In fact, none of these thinkers can be properly described as hermeticists or adherents of a hermetic philosophy. Most of them are more appropriately labeled Platonic Orientalists, with a special interest in ancient Egyptian, Persian, or Hebrew wisdom, attributed respectively to Hermes, Zoroaster, or Moses. The true story of Renaissance Hermetism is considerably more modest, but fascinating on its own terms. Its central representative was the relatively unknown poet and humanist Lodovico Lazzarelli, whose work became a major influence on Cornelius Agrippa. This is a seminal article. Uh, I've referenced it many times before, but um, read it so much in the past, I really needed to give it some time before I dove into it again and, and went over it, because it, it was one of the ones that really affected everyone in our field when it first came out, and uh, I'm sure it's going to affect you. You might have a knee-jerk reaction like I first did, but remember, good scholarship only leads you to better insights. It doesn't, uh, even though it might be overthrowing at times some some dearly held ideas that we have, um, ultimately, it can only lead us to more precision and more appreciation of the true nuances that can often unveil and create an aporia where we, we see what we have not seen that was covered up. So, consider it a study in apparatics, if you will, a discovery of the Korah between birth, life, and death. 
heritage and rupture of, with the tradition. The concept of a hermetic tradition in the Renaissance was placed on the academic agenda by Paul Oscar Christeller in 1938 and popularized by Francis A. Yeats in, since 1964. Christeller, 1938, Yeats, 1964. According to Yeats, Marsilio Ficino's translation of the latest late Hellenistic Corpus Hermeticum, first published in 1471, stood at the origin of a neglected but highly important intellectual tradition that had a great impact on the scientific revolution. Yeats's perspective has remained extremely influential in the academic community and among the wider public and keeps dominating current perceptions of the Hermetic tradition, but unfortunately, most of her guiding assumptions have proved to be incorrect. Schemus identified important thinkers such as Marsilio Ficino, who, uh, if you don't know, was a, was a priest, of course, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, and Giordano Bruno as hermetic philosophers. She marginalized the actual hermetic philosophers active in the Renaissance period, and she miscontextualized the Corpus Hermeticum, suggesting incorrectly that it was grounded in astral magic, that would be planetary magic, and concerned with questions leading up to modern science. See uh, Honograph 2015, page 180 to 183 for that. In the wake of the Francis Yates's work, the term hermeticism is still being used as a vaguely defined and highly confusing umbrella term, comprising not only the general belief in an ancient wisdom from the Orient transmitted through the Platonic tradition, Honograph 2012, in his work from 2012, if you want more on that, but also the general fascination with traditional arts or sciences such as astrology, alchemy, and natural magic. It is therefore advisable to abandon the popular term hermeticism, as it is burdened with the Yeatsian legacy, and use the alternative hermetism to refer strictly to the religio-philosophical writings attributed to or connected with Hermes Trismegistus, most importantly the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius, and their commentaries. See Vanderbrook, uh, 2005b. As for the much wider domain of traditional arts, theories, and practices concerned with the workings of nature, the so-called occult sciences, see Honograph 2013a, the fact is that some of the relevant textual materials happened to be attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, while many others were not. This makes it misleading to call such materials hermetic in a general sense. The rest of this entry will therefore focus on the figure of Hermes Trismegistus as an ancient authority in the domains of both spiritual wisdom and the secrets of nature, and more specifically on the Renaissance tradition of hermetism, based upon the Corpus Hermeticum and the Asclepius. As always, I play around with ecclesiastical and classical Latin pronunciations, and I've explained my reasons for that elsewhere. I mean, it makes sense when you're talking about <clears throat> uh, later writers, like Fricino, that they would have used ecclesiastical Latin pronunciations, right? So... A-S-C is ash, would be creating A-S, Asclepius sound. Whereas if it was classical Latin, it would be Asclepius. Just like Trismegistus in ecclesiastical Latin and Trismegistus in classical, classical Latin. So those sort of differences there. And there's a lot of other fun ones. Again, I recommend the primer on ecclesiastical Latin if you want to get some your hands on some basic church Latin, which is later Latin, and... And classical Latin has a lot of sources as well. And just learning the basics of the different pronunciations of each is really fun, especially if you want to do some uh, Solomonic prayers and stuff in, in one version and the other, depending on when they were published or stuff like that. It's, it can be really fun. For my linguistic pedant friends out there, go memorize the difference between the simple pronunciations of the two forms of Latin. Uh, it, it doesn't represent clearly where these how these people would have said it because, again language changes so much over time, there would have been many, many different variants and variations, especially based on the native language the person came from. Heritage, hermetism in late antiquity. 
In the Hellenistic culture of late antiquity, the legendary figure of Hermes Trismegistus, thrice greatest Hermes, emerged from a fusion between the Egyptian god Thoth and the Greek Hermes. See Fowden, 1986. As a semi-divine teacher of ancient spiritual wisdom and a supreme authority on the secrets of the universe, his name appears in many textual materials that are either attributed to him directly or were believed to be based upon his knowledge. In the wake of André-Jean Fustigier's foundational studies of the hermetic literature of antiquity, Fustigier, 1950-1954, for his work, it has become common practice to distinguish between the technical hermetica, magical, astrological, and alchemical texts that go under the name of Hermes, and the philosophical hermetica, concerned with the philosophical and spiritual teachings relevant to the search for a salvational gnosis. During the Middle Ages, a great variety of texts pertaining to the technical hermetica began to circulate, some in original Latin versions, others in Latin and Arabic translations from Greek originals, and others in Latin translations from the Arabic. As for the philosophical Hermetica, only the Latin Asclepius, based upon a Greek original of which only a fragment survives, was available to scholars in Western Europe during the Middle Ages. We do not know how many philosophical Hermetica may once have existed, or in what order they were originally composed to be read. The collection known today as the Corpus Hermeticum was collated in Byzantium during the Middle Ages, and seems to have been known in roughly its present form at least since Michael Psellus in the 11th century. It consists of 17 treatises, numbered rather confusingly as 1 through 14 and 16 through 18. Since the 16th century, the standard numbering derives from the first modern editor of the Greek text, Adrian Turneb, who in 1554 included some hermetic excerpts by Stobius as chapter 15. Later editors retained Turneb's numbering but left out chapter 15. It is plausible to assume that the philosophical hermetica were once part of a spiritual curriculum that began with rational philosophy but should ideally culminate in the attainment of supra-rational gnosis. The majority of the philosophical hermetica, including the Asclepius, are concerned essentially with standard discussions about the nature of the world, God, and the divine based upon prevailing Platonic, Aristotelian, and Stoic perspectives. From a philosophical point of view, these texts are interesting, but not particularly original or profound. Known as the general and more specific discourses, Genikoi Logoi and Exodiakoi Logoi, see Hanegraaff, 2008-136. Their chief function seems to have consisted in providing a solid intellectual foundation for those who desire to go beyond philosophy and to attain ultimate religious salvation through first-hand experience of and unity with the divine. The first steps toward that goal are described in chapter 1. The anonymous author, conventionally identified as Hermes, relates how one day, after having pondered philosophical problems for a long time, he fell into a trance-like or altered state of consciousness and found himself in the awe-inspiring presence of Poimandres, mind of sovereignty, who offered to answer his questions. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. He answers that he wants to understand the nature of the things that are and know God. He immediately receives an answer to both questions, not through verbal instruction, but by means of direct vision. First, he sees the world emerging from the encounter between a frightening mass of dark primal substance, physis, and a holy word, logos hagios, which literally just means a holy word, that descends on it from the light above. Having watched the conception and birth of the world in this manner, the protagonist is then instructed to fix his mind on the light and get to know it, after which Poimandris holds his gaze for a long time. 
I do love that idea of, of, of a holy word or light descending upon a dark primal substance and, the, and this sort of union forming creation. It, it is beautiful, uh, poetically especially. This episode contains the answer to his second question. The divine light that is Poimandris' spiritual essence turns out to be identical with the visionary's own spiritual essence. In the other words, while looking into Poimandris' eyes, he is looking at himself. And in watching himself, he is watching the divine light that is watching him. In this manner, he receives knowledge not only about the nature of the world and the nature of God, but about the nature of man as well. Knowledge of God means knowledge of oneself, and the reverse, because in their ultimate essence, they are both the same, uncreated light. The rest of chapter 1 is devoted to verbal instructions in which Poimandras discusses and extrapolates upon these mystical visions by means of a philosophical discourse. The, quote, way of Hermes is continued in chapter 18, the most explicitly initiatic treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum. Hermes Trismegistus tells his pupil, Tat, how he has been born again into an immortal body that cannot be seen by mortal eyes. His words cause Tat to fall into an ecstatic state of mania, divine madness according to Plato, Phaedrus 244a through d, that turns out to be the beginning of a similar process of spiritual rebirth. Because Tat's mode of perception still does not change, Hermes proceeds to invoke ten healing powers of light that expel the twelve irrational tormentors of materiality that, as he explains, have been blocking Tat's understanding. These twelve tormentors, personified as demonic entities linked to the astrological signs and named ignorance, grief, incontinence, lust, injustice, greed, deceit, envy, treachery, anger, recklessness, and malice, are forced out of Tat's body and leave with a flapping of wings. As a result of this exorcism, it's interesting, uh, oftentimes an initiation is a kind of exorcism, especially certain ones. Tat finds that his understanding is indeed unblocked. He now sees external reality not with the sight of the eyes, but with the mental energy that comes through the powers, and finds that he is one with the whole of reality. Quote, I am in heaven, in earth, in water, in air. I am in animals and in plants, in the womb, before the womb, after the womb, everywhere. CH 18 verse 11, or 13 verse 11. In a parallel passage in chapter 11, verse 20, precisely this mode of cosmic consciousness is described as what true knowledge of God is all about. Thus having been born a God, and a child of the one, chapter 13, verse 14, in a new immortal body, Tat should now be able to rise above the seven planetary spheres of the cosmos and reach the luminous sphere of the eighth and the ninth. For, quote, such is the happy end for those who have received Gnosis, to become God. Chapter 1, verse 26. This final ascent is described in a crucial treatise known as the Ogdoad and the Ennead, discovered in, at Nag Hammadi in 1945, and therefore unknown to Renaissance readers. How much do you love the fact that archaeology and modern 20th century human discovery, up to, even up to present day, led to the discovery of the most crucial thing that was missing from a text that we had been exploring for almost and discovering and teaching from and learning from as, as spiritual beings for 2,000 years. But it wasn't until Nag Hammadi we discovered a missing piece of that exact text. I just love that. If there's a reason for us to still have universities and archaeologists and, and scholars, that's one of them right there. Of course, it doesn't need to be in the form that they exist today, though who knows what's going to happen, right? I mean, my, 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 my program, again, is shut down, so that's twice for me. Oh, what a world. 
Assisted and guided by Hermes, Tat's soul travels upward toward the eighth and ninth spheres where he sees unspeakable depths. Quote, the beginning of the power above all powers, who does not himself have a beginning. And that is from Nag Hammadi 6, note 6, 57 to 58. Most of all, in looking at this ultimate divine reality, he finds that he is looking at himself. Ibidim. In other words, the final salvation consists not much in unification with the divine as in the recognition that he has always been one with it. Transmission, the Middle Ages. This core message of the philosophical Hermetica got lost during the Middle Ages. Most early Christian authors with an African background, notably Tertullian, Cyprian, Arnobius, Lactantius, and Augustine, were familiar with the Hermetic literature. See Mahe 20, 1982 and interested in comparing it to the Christian faith. Lactantius saw only a perfect concordance between the teachings of Hermetic and Christian theology, as he said, both as to substance and verbatim. But in, the cru in a crucial discussion of Platonic thought, Augustine analyzed the passages of Asclepius 23 to 24 and 37 to 38, where Hermes praises the Egyptian practice of animating temple statues and concluded that Hermes must be condemned as an advocate of idolatry. The effect of Augustine's condemnation on medieval discussions was mitigated by a case of mistaken attribution, an anti-Aryan tract known as the as adversus quinque caresis, heresies, uh, attributed to Quadvoltius uh, since the early 20th century, but previous believed to be Augustine, contained a positive discussion of Hermes based on Lactantius while making no mention of idolatry. In medieval authors such as Herman of Carinthia, De Ascentes, uh, John of Salisbury, Polycraticus, or Alan of Lille, Summa Quonium Homines, the positive Lactantian perspective remained dominant, but Augustine's condemnation made a strong comeback with William of Auvergne. At this time, Augustine's perspective was given a new urgency because of its relevance to the potentially idolatrous science of images based upon a range of technical hermetica concerned with astrology and astral magic that had now become available from Arabic sources. See Vile Perrault. Uh, 2002. Later, medieval authorities such as Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Brandwarden, Berthold of Moosburg, and Nicholas of Cusa took different positions. Between the conflicting Lactantian and Augustinian perspectives. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. And these intellectual traditions were inherited by the uh, Italian humanists central to the revival of Hermetic literature during the 15th century. Revival. The Platonic Orientalist Context. The revival of interest in Hermetic literature during the Renaissance should not be seen as an isolated phenomenon. It must be understood within the much broader context of the Platonic Revival based upon some very specific assumptions derived ultimately from patristic literature, notably Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Eusebius, but also Augustine. See more of that in Honograph 2012. First of all, and just I'm going to throw out there uh, for any new scholars getting into scholarship, um, whenever you say someone's an academic's name with a year, it means the book they published in that year or a major uh, contribution in a published journal. So that's, that's what that is. First of all, 
Plato was not just perceived as a philosopher in the modern sense, that is, as a rational thinker who conclude, whose conclusions are reached through the discursive technique of Socratic dialogue, but more broadly as an inspired teacher who revealed authoritative religious or spiritual wisdom pertaining to the salvation of the soul. And now, let's not forget that he was pagan as well as Aristotle. Second, the assumption was that this wisdom had not originated with Plato or Socrates himself, but had come from much more ancient oriental teachers of wisdom. This general perspective on the nature of Platonism may be referred to as Platonic Orientalism. See Walbridge 2001 and Hanegraaff 2012 for that term and its uh, debate in origin. It came in several variants depending on who was identified as the most ancient teacher of wisdom, depending on whether the sources of Platonism were assumed to be Persian, Hebrew, or Egyptian. We can distinguish between Zoroastrian, a Mosaic, and a Hermetic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism. And I covered this, of course, in my previous uh, look at the Yeats paradigm on this podcast. I believe I titled it The Problematic Hermetic Tradition of Francis Yates. For religious philosophers during the Renaissance, the Platonic Orientalist framework, what we used to call the Hermetic tradition, basically is what they're saying, framework implied that Christianity was the inheritor of an extremely ancient tradition of universal wisdom that had reached the Christians through Platonic sources, and Christian doctrine could therefore be harmonized with the most profound teachings of pagan philosophy and religion. This is the basic idea. I think a lot of us are familiar with this general milieu. According to a first perspective known as Prisca Theologia and represented notably by Marsilio Ficino, the original purity and perfection of the ancient wisdom had been contaminated and lost through a long process of historical degeneration and a restoration of re or revival was therefore needed. An alternative perspective, known as Philosophia Perennis, and represented notably by Agostino Stoico, placed the emphasis on conti continuity rather than decline, arguing that the great tradition of true wisdom had always been kept alive and remained available to anyone who needed it. Here's the two ideas, which I did, I did talk about them in my commentary on the previous study of the pentagram rituals and the LBRP. And, um, so, but I didn't look actually at the nuance between uh, the two views of Prisca Theologia and Sophia Perennis. So the Prisca Theologia idea is that the great wisdom that came from pre-Christianity into Christianity and through it and beyond it, has been contaminated and needs to be resuscitated and we have to sort of work on it to improve it, which is, this is pioneered by Marsilio Ficino. Of course, they were missing the stuff that was discovered in Nag Hammadi, which is one of the reasons that it was seen more as a precursor to rational thinking and science. I mean, one of the main things that was lost was Ficino had a passage where he commented from the Corpus Hermeticum that uh, it's a very crucial passage that 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 says nothing can be known beyond what is capable. I believe what reason and rationality it takes us as far as we can possibly go. But the passage actually is um, that it takes us beyond reason and rationality. And so, if if you say if you argue, of course, that rationality is the highest state and will take us to our highest state, that's an argument for proto science and the development of science. But if a text says that we attain our highest state going by going beyond reason to something higher that is more subtle, mystical, then of course that's not an argument for proto science. That's an argument for something very different, more theos theosis and and uh, you know, theurgical divinization, as we say. Um, and Sophia Perennis, the perennial wisdom idea is that this wisdom, like sort of Steiner's view of the secret stream, it's always there and available to those who need to access it. So back to it. During the Renaissance, the former perspective, Prisca Theologia, carried revolutionary implications of religious reform as it suggested that the church had lost its connection with the ancient wisdom and needed to be restored to its original purity. 
Hard to argue with that. Eh? <laughs> the latter perspective was inherently conservative and could be used to highlight the Church of Rome as the divinely appointed institution charged with preserving the ancient universal tradition of wisdom. So if you believe that that, that perennial wisdom, Sophia Perennis, is always there and is uncontaminated, that is also an argument for establishmentarianism of the Church, saying, look, no matter what form the Church is taking or the rulers of the world are taking, that wisdom is there and they're preserving it so we should let them keep preserving it because that wisdom is there and you can access it if you want. But if you say that wisdom has become corrupted or needs to be revitalized or improved or augmented or taught better, that is an anti-establishmentarian position. Very, very interesting subject. In fact, I think, I think a great paper subject is to investigate, compare, and, and discern the differences and implications of Prisca Theologia and Sophia Perennis. That is probably, I wouldn't be surprised if that's an assignment that Dr. Honegroff and others uh, dish out to their, their uh, grads and undergrad students. Though I don't think they teach undergrad students. Anyway, one day. The revival of Platonic Orientalism during the Italian Renaissance can be traced to the Council of Ferrara, Ferrara and Florence of 1437 and 1438. At this occasion, the Byzantine philosopher George Gemistos, circa 1355, who called himself Plethon, you might be familiar with that name, made personal contact with the circles of Italian humanists in Florence and greatly impressed them with his knowledge of Plato and Aristotle, Honograph 2012. He had no interest in Hermes and Egypt, but strongly defended a Zoroastrian interpretation of Platonic Orientalism, claiming that the true wisdom had originated with Zoroaster in ancient Persia and had been transmitted to Plato and the Platonic tradition from there. See, so that's one of the arguments against the idea of a hermetic tradition, is, is that because all these main proponents of the hermetic tradition actually attributed the teachings of the Corpus Hermeticum and those, those writings that we call hermit, hermetism um, to different ancient figures, Moses, Hermes, or Zoroaster. So there's different streams that feed into a hermetic tradition, in which case the argument is, since, since these streams come from Moses, Zoroaster, and, and Hermes, why are we calling it the hermetic tradition when it's really more, uh, more general or vague from the ancient Near East, hence Platonic Orientalism? That is the basic argument. It's not all that fancy... Uh, nuanced, but it's providing additional context so that we don't get so restricted by this idea of a strictly hermetic tradition and become sort of um, limited in our understanding the full scope of what we are looking at and the sources these wisdoms are coming from. Among those present on whom Plethon's message made a lasting impression was the young Cosimo de' Medici, the later ruler of Florence and Messinus. Messinus? of philosophy and the arts. About two decades after the council, around 1460, Cosmo met the young Marsilio Ficino and recognized a golden opportunity to realize Plethon's dream of restoring the Platonic philosophy. He put Ficino in charge of translating Plato's complete dialogues into Latin, thereby creating the foundations for the subsequent Renaissance revival of Platonic philosophy, including the Hermetic sources from which it was believed to have sprung. Marsilio Ficino and Hermetic Philosophy While Ficino was still in the early stages of his Plato translations, a manuscript from Byzantium arrived in Florence that contained the first 14 treatises of what is known today as the Corpus Hermeticum. Cosmo ordered Ficino to interrupt his work on Plato to translate the writings of Hermes first, presumably because he wanted to have a chance to read them before his death. From a Platonic Orientalist perspective, his motivation is easy to understand. It was believed that Hermes Trismegistus had lived much earlier than Plato, and so his writings might be the ultimate Oriental source from which the Platonic wisdom tradition had emerged. Ficino's translation was finished in 1464 and survives in many different manuscripts. See Campanelli, 2011. We covered this earlier as well, and we'll cover it again, the different manuscript traditions. 
However, it was not printed until eight years later, and even that famous first edition of 1471, to which we will return, was published without Ficino's knowledge or authorization as Liber de Potestate et Sapientia Dei, or Pimander. Pimander. In fact, it would seem that the Corpus Hermeticum had not given Ficino and Cosmo what they had been hoping for. Plato's dialogues turned out to be far more complex and profound, and in fact, Ficino's translation shows that he did not grasp the core message of the Hermetic literature all that well. We can see this from the rather careless way he handles some of the most crucial hermetic passages about the attainment of Gnosis and his failure to understand the specificity of this terminology as referring to a salvational, quote, knowledge unattainable by reason. And that's from Hanegraaff 2015. I believe I might have talked about that a bit in Better Than Magic on this podcast. In the oft-quoted argumentum, to the Pimander, Ficino provided a famous genealogy of six Prisci theologi, Mercurius, Hermes, Trismegistus, Orpheus, Agliophemus, Pythagoras, Philoleos, and Plato. Except for Hermes, this list was taken from Proclus's Theologia Platonica 1.5. Ficino quoted Augustine's opinion that Trismegistus had lived several generations after Moses, next to the alternative next to the alternative views of Cicero and Lactantius, who had mentioned no fewer than five Mercuries, the fifth of whom had been Trismegistus. Otherwise, than has often been assumed, Ficino expressed no clear opinion of his own. Regardless of how he may have thought of Hermes' relation to Moses, just one year later, he seems to have made up his mind once and for all. From 1464 until the end of his life, he highlighted Zoroaster as the most ancient source of wisdom prior to both Moses and Hermes. In spite, I think Steiner might, Rudolf Steiner actually would probably agree with that, uh, especially on a clairvoyant level. Steiner actually wrote a lot on the ideas of uh, Araman and Uhura Mazda and Zoroaster. Inspired by both Plethon's work and the biblical story of the Magi, interpreted as Zoroastrians, he assumed that far before Moses, Abraham had taken the Chaldean and Persian wisdom with him when he set out from Ur, of the Chaldeans in quest of the Promised Land, Hanegraaff 2012. Ficino, therefore, did not adhere to the hermetic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism, nor to the Mosaic one, as done by his contemporary Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, who, of course, is responsible for bringing the, the Shin into the Tetragrammaton, the Yodhe Shinvavhe, as the Jesus, Jesusifying of the Tetragrammaton. Uh, but to a Zoroastrian alternative. The Corpus Hermeticum does not seem to have had any deep impact on his thinking, though I think it's worth adding that could be, as already mentioned, due to slightly uh, Ficino's sloppy handling of the text in key passages and translations. In his later work, notably De Vita Celitas Comparanda, all the attention goes clearly to the notorious God-making passages of the Eschlepius that had been condemned by Augustine and discussed since William of Auvergne, see above. If Ficino paid so much attention to these passages, this was not because of any deep wish to highlight the wisdom of Hermes, but because he needed to counter suspicions that by defending talismanic images, with much attention to the medieval picatrix, he might be defending the kind of hermetic idolatry condemned by Augustine, right? So Vicino also, like, under the de Medici's opened up the first hospital, and basically they were just practicing talismanic and natural magic, putting out metals with runes and, and you know, plants and herbs and stuff under different transits of planets to create talismans and magical effects to heal people. That's what they were up to, these priests, under the authority of the of the Pope at the time and the de Medici's funding. So they needed to make sure they weren't considered heretics. Of course, this that same tradition was then considered heretical during the Counter-Reformation with Giordano Bruno. He was burned at the stake for that, yada, yada, yada. Though now there's a statue of him, and they, they said sorry that they burned him at the stake. The Pope did in the 20th century. Oops, sorry. For these various reasons, it does not make sense to describe Ficino as a hermetic philosopher. There we go. 
whatever. This interpretation comes from Francis Yates, who consistently overemphasized the God-making passages throughout her famous book of 1964. The Asclepius, which it bears repeating, has nothing new in the 15th century, was mentioned at least 80 times, with at least 45 references to Asclepius 23 to 24 and 37 to 38, while CH1 was mentioned about 24 times, and the other treatises were mentioned rarely or not at all. The Renaissance Transmission of the Corpus Hermeticum Ficino's Corpus Hermeticum translation was published almost simultaneously in two different editions. The well-known Treviso edition appeared in, on 18 December 1471, just 20 days earlier than the largely forgotten Ferrara edition, which came out on the 8th of January 1472. They were based upon two different manuscripts, but although the second edition turns out to be much more reliable, it remained a standalone version without much further influence. The first edition, on the other hand, became the basis for no less than nine of the 17 later editions of the chapters that appeared in the 15th and 16th century. See Campanelli 2011, Summary Overview in Honograph 2015. The Treviso edition was published by Gerert van der Leij and Francesco Rolandello without Ficino's authorization. <laughs> On times, and turns out to be seriously defective. It has been described as nothing less than an authentic textual disaster based upon scandalous negligence <laughs> by Campanelli in 2011, um, in his introduction, actually. As later editors tried to correct these many errors and omissions without having success, access to the Greek original or Ficino's manuscripts, the predictable result was an ever-increasing range of variant readings and misunderstandings. An edition based upon a third manuscript appeared in Florence in 1513 and led to two later editions, Basel, 1532, edited by Michael Isingren, and Krakow, 1585, edited by Annibal Rosselli, with very lengthy commentaries. Finally, not counting vernacular versions, we have three editions independent of Chino. The Greek original was published by Adrian Turneb, Paris, 1554, and new Latin translations by Francois Foy de Candale and Francesco Patrizzi came out of Bordeaux in 1574 and Ferrara in 1591, respectively. None of these editions succeeded in transmitting the original Hermetic doctrine to Renaissance readers. If Hermes was seen as important, this had much less to do with the intrinsic contents of the writings attributed to him than with his traditional authority as an ancient teacher of divine wisdom, a pagan prophet of Christian doctrine, and an expert in the so-called occult sciences. It's important to remember for us that he held a role in popular imagination, essentially in pop culture. These elements were all based upon the original Christian and medieval reception of the Hermetic writings and owed little to the new materials now available in the Corpus Hermeticum. It is only in the works of a few French authors writing in the mid and later 16th century, Gabriel de Preux and François-Foy de Candale, Candel? I don't know, my French is mediocre, pardon me, Canada, Canada that one begins to see signs of a more adequate understanding of the hermetic message. With her usual flair and sense of drama, Frances Yates claimed that when Isaac Casabon undermined Hermes' great antiquity by dating Corpus Hermeticum to the 2nd and 3rd century, in his Deribus Sacris and Ecclesiasticus of 1614, he killed the hermetic tradition at one blow. Yates Francis Yates, 1964, page 398. Referring to Casabon's heavily annotated edition of Turneb's Greek edition, she wrote that, Holding his, this little book in one's hand, one realizes with a certain awe that it represents the death of the Hermes Trismegistus of the Renaissance. Today we know that Turneb's pupil, Gilbert Genebrad, 1567, Mathieu Berold, 1575, and Jean Van Gorp, 1580, had been criticizing the great antiquity of the Corpus Hermeticum since 1567. During the 1580s, 
Genebrard's pupil, Teodoro Angelucci, attacked Francesco Patrizzi's ideas about Hermes at great length, leading to vehement discussions with Patrizzi and his friends, Francesco Muti and Antonio Persio. Casabon, therefore, seems to have been the closing and culminating protagonist in a debate that had started almost half a century earlier. Moreover, that debate was not yet over. Positive interpretations of the CH, as well as translations into vernacular languages, the Corpus Hermeticum is CH, uh, were published by authors such as Heinrich Knoll, 1617, Abraham Willems von Beerland, Dutch translation, 1643 to 1652, and John Everard, English translation, 1650 and 1657 and in his True Intellectual System of the Universe, 1678. The Cambridge Platonist Ralph Cudworth argued that Casabon's arguments were relevant to only some of the Hermetic treatises, and the others, including the Asclepius, might still be as ancient as had always been claimed. The first German translation of the Corpus Hermeticum by Aletophilus appeared in 1706, followed by Dietrich Tiedemann's in 1781 for the further debate on hermitism during the enlightenment and afterwards see fevre that's anton fevre of course the guy who started uh esoteric studies department at the sorbonne which you can still get degrees from and check out fevre's book 2005 i believe it's called being hermes and a classic which i haven't written 15 years but antoine fevre's books for being hermes and access to western Esotericism are extremely essential readings in esotericism, especially access to Western esotericism. Lodovico Lazzarelli and Hermetic Gnosis. When Christeller placed the Hermetic tradition back on the agenda of Renaissance studies in his seminal article of 1938, he highlighted two central authors, Marsilio Ficino and Lodovico Lazzarelli, 1447 to 1500. A second milestone publication on Renaissance Hermetism, Garin et al., 1955, likewise placed Lazzarelli in the center of the Hermetic revival. However, Frances Yates marginalized him in her famous book on Bruno, that's Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition, dismissing him in a footnote as a most enthusiastic and exaggerated hermetist and directing all further attention to Ficino, Pico, and Bruno. A whole generation of Renaissance scholars followed in her footsteps and forgot about Lazzarelli. Oops. You know, I've, I've gone over this article so many times since I, I believe it came out in 2018 and, and really uh, <laughs> flipped the whole esoteric hermetic studies on its head sort of though we we've we'd known these problems for a while um and every time i read this i always like have always reacted differently because you know and this time reading it one of the new things that really i feel strongly about is that as a scholar if you gloss something in such a way that it leads scholarship after you to ignore it when you should have known better, that really is, that's a, that's a major, major mistake. Yeah. Certitude is dangerous, but scholarship does also call for certainty. So what do you do? You do your best. We're all just doing our best, right? Smile. This now turns out to have been a dramatic mistake with far-reaching consequences, for whereas Yeats's favorites can hardly be referred to as hermetists at all, Lazzarelli is the clearest and most explicit example of a hermetic philosopher that one will find in the entire Renaissance period. The real hermetic tradition of the Renaissance has relatively little to do with Ficino, and even less with Pico and Bruno. Because Ficino, of course, uh, looked back all the way to Zoroaster and Pico to Moses. But Lazzarelli looked to Hermes, so there you go. Its crucial representatives were Lazzarelli. His spiritual master, Giovanni de Caraggio, circa 1451, uh, followed by Francis Yates's Bet Noir, Cornelius Agrippa. Lazzarelli was born in San Severino in 1447 and moved to Rome in the first half of the 1470s. He joined the Roman Academy and hoped to achieve fame as a poet, 
until a fateful day in 1481 when he met the strange apocalyptic prophet Giovanni de Correggio. Correggio's sermons made such an impression that Lazzarelli left the Parnassian hills and everything else and right away followed him to Mount Zion, the first of his pupils. <laughs> Lazzarelli, Epistola Enoch, 13.1. In other words, he abandoned profane poetry to pursue a spiritual path. One year later, in 1482, Lazzarelli offered his teacher a beautiful manuscript that contained all the philosophical hermetica in Latin, preceded by prefaces in poetry, prose and poetry. Next to the Asclepius and Ficino's Pimander, Corpus Hermeticum 1 to 14 chapters, it also contained Corpus Hermeticum 16 to 18, translated by Lazzarelli from an independent manuscript of the Corpus Hermeticum, more complete than the one that had been used by Ficino. These so-called Definiciones Hermetici, Hermetici were published after Lazzarelli's death by Symphorium Champier, 1507. Lazzarelli's prefaces to the Philosophical Hermetica show his deep admiration for the Hermetic wisdom, which he considers to be the key to the true meaning of the Christian message. Most surprisingly, it appears that Lazzarelli's identified his teacher, Correggio, with no one less than Hermes himself. Father Mercurius, teacher by fatherly love, hail to you who are like a god to me. You have begotten me anew by ethereal seed and taught me to be born again without deceit. Well, it sort of sounds a lot like actually Lazzarelli is saying that his teacher Caraggio had this, what some call the, the etheric link to Hermes himself and that was passed on to Lazzarelli. Doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. A later manuscript by Lazzarelli, the Epistola Enoch, confirms that, no doubt on Lazzarelli's instigation, by 1484, Correggio had come to think of himself as the Hermetic Christ. Wow. On Palm Sunday that year, he made a spectacular appearance in Rome, sitting on a donkey, dressed like Jesus and wearing a crown of thorns. He entered the city and announced the coming of the end of times. <laughs> You gotta love this stuff, right? <laughs> Above his head, he carried a silver-plated disc shaped like the crescent of a moon with a text that identified him as both Pymander and Jesus Christ. Wonderful. <laughs> Sometime in the later 1480s, Lazzarelli moved to Naples, where he tried to gain the attention of King Ferdinand of Aragon and Sicily, known as Ferrante. His most important work, A Dialogue of the Supreme Dignity of Man, entitled The Way of Christ and the Mixing Bowl of Hermes, usually referred to as the Crater Hermetis, was written here probably between 1492 and 1494. Modeled closely after the Hermetic Dialogues, it casts Lazzarelli himself in the role of a teacher of wisdom who initiates two pupils into the Hermetic Mysteries, now, this is stuff like Bruno and uh, Ficino didn't, as far as we know, I don't think really did. Um, those pupils are none else than King Ferrante himself and his Secretary of State, the poet and astrologer Giovanni Pontano. Although Lazzarelli succeeded in gaining an audience with the king to present his large poem, Fasti Cristiani Religionis, we have no evidence that Ferrante ever received or read the Crater Hermetis. When Charles VIII took possession of Naples on 21st February 1494, a year after Ferrante's death, Lazzarelli made a half-hearted attempt to replace the name Ferdinandus by Caroli, but his new copy dedicated to the French king was never finished. So he's writing these poems where he's, uh, and these verses where he's characterizing himself, initiating the king and his, his number one guy um, as an attempt to, to do so and convince them to let him mentor them, I guess, in these spiritual teachings. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, imagine, you're a liege. I've written a poem in which I initiate you to secret wisdom. Here it is. What do you say? And the king's like, who are you? Go away. Ew. The Crater Hermetis is a unique and powerful text, impressive for its literary qualities no less than for its extremely original interpretation of the Hermetic message. I know, it makes you want to read it, right? 
Lazzarelli argues that the Poimandras was no one else than the divine Logos himself, the second person of the Trinity, who thus appeared to Hermes prior to his incarnation as Jesus Christ. And there's the theology for you. This same Poimandras, Christ, has now taken residence in Lazzarelli and has illumined his mind so that he is able to instruct his two pupils about the road toward true felicity through attaining self-knowledge or gnosis. This is like an ancient version of knowledge and conversation with the Holy Guardian Angel, it seems. Very similar theology. Prompted by the questions of his pupils, Lazzarelli embarks on an allegorical exegesis of various biblical passages explaining such topics as the meaning of the trees in paradise, the women in Proverbs, the daughters of men, and the nature of the fall. I wonder if there's much entheogenic suggestions in there. We'll have to look at that one day in the future. These explanations are full of references to the Hermetic writings and cause his pupils to gradually move toward a state of ecstasy that makes them receptive to the true mystery. Remarkably, that mystery appears to be hidden precisely in the most controversial passages of the Hermetic literature. The God-making passages about the animation of statues, Lazzarelli agrees with Augustine that Hermes Trismegistus did not indeed lapse into idolatry. But he proceeds to argue that this happened because, as a pagan living before the Incarnation, he was not yet capable of fully understanding the message that Poimandra's Christ was revealing to him. So, interesting. Uh, <laughs> you get it. The Egyptians attracted souls into their temple statues because they did not know the secret by which they could create souls themselves. Wow. Only the Christian hermitist is able to attain perfect self-knowledge and knowledge of God, and this allows him to unite with God's innermost being so completely that he even participates in God's fertility, that is to say, his very power of creation. So the idea is that the ancients, pre-Christian magicians and, and, and mystics, were didn't have the full story, so they were bringing spiritual souls and creating souls into statues. But once Christ came along and said, no, you create those souls into yourself, you become one with God and then create that, that's the true way and the earlier way is idolatry. You've got to keep in mind that these, these folks who were doing this during the Renaissance and Middle Ages were always under the threat of not Christianizing things. If they didn't really Christianize things in the right way, and, and even if whether they believed it or not, and put a veneer of the churches right on top of their magic, then they could be killed. So um, always take that stuff into account when you're looking at the context or looking through your hermeneutic lens at the time, place, and reasons for different interpretations. As a result, he can do what only God can do, create souls. In all likelihood, this doctrine of soul creation comes from Eliezer of Worms' commentary on the Sefer Yetzirah and related interpretations in the school of Abraham Abulafia, which Lazzarelli seems to have found in the writings of Pico della Mirandola's Jewish teacher, Yohanan Alameno. I believe it was Alameno also who influenced um, Raman Lull that we recently discovered through Moshe Adele's research, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. Of course, Lazzarelli's pupils, Ferrante and Pontano, express their desire to be initiated into the supreme knowledge that will allow them to create souls. But Lazzarelli postpones his final revelation for a future time. The Transmission of Lazzarellian Hermetism it's so important to remember also these folks were working with grimoires. They were working with things like the Picatrix and other, other extant magical texts. Like, don't forget that. One year after Lazzarelli's death, in 1501, Giovanni di Caraggio appeared in Lyon, where he managed to gain an audience with King Louis XII. He offered his own exhortaciones in Barbaros Turcos Scythias to the king, and a similar work to the French ambassador who passed it on to an Italian manuscript hunter, Pietro Aleandro, see Hanegraaff 2005. In all likelihood, this was Lazzarelli's deluxe manuscript of Ficino's Pimander, Corpus Hermeticum 1 through 14, the Aschlepius and the Definiciones Aschlepi, Corpus Hermeticum 16 to 18. 
with Lazzarelli's introductions. Aleandro took it to Venice and then to Rome, from where Egidio de Viterbo seems to have brought it to Viterbo, where it is still kept today. Aleandro described how Correggio was disputing with two of the king's physicians, one of whom can be identified as Symphorium Champier. Champier would seem to have used the occasion to have a copy made of the Definiciones Ashlepi, which he published in 1507, thereby completing Ficino's translation of the Corpus Hermeticum with the final three treatises that were missing from the Pimander, Champier, 1507. Correggio's visit to Lyon thus seems to have been crucial to the subsequent diffusion of the Hermetica from Italy to France and more generally to the French tradition of Prisca Theologia. And see Walker, 1954, that would be the scholar D.P. Walker, I believe. Next to Champier's important publication of 1507, Jacques Lefebvre's De Taple published Lazzarelli's Crater Hermetis together with the other Hermetica in an equally crucial edition two years earlier, Lefebvre de Taple, 1505. However, Lefebvre's edition was edited to purify it of potentially heretical elements and even deleted all references to Giovanni Pontano. The dialogue now seemed to take place between Lazzarelli and Ferrante alone. Never forget that the secret, if a text doesn't say exactly what you want it to say, then just delete what you don't like. <laughs> Lefebvre de Taple's edition of Lazzarelli's Crater had a very great impact on Cornelius Agrippa during his hermetic and largely Italian period, 1509 to 1518. As it turns out, he was reading the Hermetica entirely through Lazzarelli's eyes. And at the core of Agrippa's religious message, we find Lazzarelli's innovative doctrine that the man who achieves true knowledge is thereby restored to his pre-Lapsarian state and comes to participate in God's own power of creation. As such, the deified human being can literally do anything. Agrippa, De Occulta Philosophia 2.50. Agrippa concealed this message behind elusive hints, enigmatic statements, and the evocation of secrets, quote, which would not be publicly discussed. From That's also from De Occulta Philosophia 3.36. But if he emphasized the supremacy of Christian faith in his later work, what he really meant was Lazzarelli's doctrine of deification through gnosis. And you can confirm that by reading Hannah Graf's 2009 work. So there you have it. Um, when Agrippa, when Agrippa is talking about Christian faith, because uh, later Agrippa is considered very problematic by occultists, what you really need to know is he's always referring to this gaining the power of God's own creation as Lazzarelli's doctrine of deification through Gnosis, which, which goes back earlier. So Agrippa can only be understood, especially later Agrippa and the magical practices he was teaching spiritually, um, must be, don't, aren't understood through, through traditional canonical faith, but through Lazzarelli's Kabbalistic hermetic interpretation of deification through Gnosis. Very, very important point. Like that's the that's the takeaway from this uh, to a large extent, among many, many other amazing things. Again, we owe so much to Voter Hanegraaff. He's just the, the, some of these scholars are doing stuff that allow us to create understand so much more depth to our own spiritual lives and practices if we delve into them. Conclusion. We have seen that current notions of an early modern hermetic tradition are grounded in Francis Yates's grand narrative and find little support in documented evidence. It is more accurate to speak of a hermetic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism in competition with a Zoroastrian and a Mosaic Christian Kabbalistic interpretation. Interestingly, while Yates's favorites Marsilio Ficino and Giovanni Pico della Mirandola were explicit and consistent in their adherence to these two later latter interpretations, the hermetic option remained little more than a theoretical possibility. The true founder of Christian hermetism in the Renaissance period, Lodovico Lazzarelli, 
showed little interest in Plato or later Platonic authors and focused almost exclusively on Hermes and the Bible with some additional interest in Kabbalah. He understood the Hermetic writings better than any of his contemporaries or any early modern successors, but his influence remained limited to Lefebvre's edition and the use that Agrippa made of it. In short, while the dissemination of Hermetic texts during the Renaissance caused a lively discourse about Hermes and the Hermetica, we have almost no evidence for a Hermetic tradition. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk